The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, uh, we're going to be tonight in the book of Jonah. And uh, Sam would have been teaching tonight, except that uh, he had a baby here a week or so ago. He came back for Easter to come lead us and worship on Easter. And then right after that, his family got, got the flu. <laughs> so they've just been battling it out, you know, and, uh, and making their way through that mess. <laughs> so he's home caring for his wife and kids tonight, which means I'm sliding over to pinch hit for him today. Um, you, you might notice last week we did Hosea. The next book after Hosea is not Jonah. <laughs> um, I picked Jonah because I wanted to cheat. No, I'm joking. Uh, I, I, the, the way that the, the weeks have stacked up for this Old Testament overview, uh, we're kind of coming to that time where summer is, is coming up on us. And uh, as a result, what Jeff and Sam decided to do is tackle the minor prophets in chunks so that we can get to them before summer starts and, and, and there's a change up in the service times here and, and we don't have these kinds of discipleship types of gatherings in the same format. So we wanted to make sure that that was done before summer. So um, I'm teaching a little bit out of order. I'm going to hit Jonah tonight. And over the next couple of weeks, uh, Sam and Jeff will cover the rest of the Old Testament minor prophets for us as uh, we continue to learn and grow together. Hey, um, before we get started here, I'd like to sort of say that, man, I can identify with this story. Um, I, I can mention probably more stories than you would want to hear <laughs> about times where I've been running from God. Moments in my life where I, I knew what his will was. I knew he was pursuing me. And, um, and yet, um, I, I didn't want to do his will. And uh, so I, I think there's a tendency in us, as we, we come to this book, we go, oh, man, Jonah, what a loser. I mean, this guy, he's running from God. I, he's a prophet. I mean, what kind of prophet runs from God? Well, sometimes God asks you to do things, and you're like, the cost is too great. The, the, the reality of that is, is too hurtful for me when he asks you to stay in that marriage when it's difficult, when he asks you to forgive again, right? And you're brought to the crisis of the conflict inside of your heart that says, I know what God wants from me, but it feels impossible. What happens if he gets his way? What happens to me if I stay? What happens to my heart if I forgive? Does that person just get away with things? What, what happens then? What if I keep loving? What if I keep pursuing? What if I step out in faith and everything falls apart? I know what you're telling me, God, but I, I just feel like what you're asking is too great. So before we step into the world of Jonah, I want us to first kind of identify him with him a little bit. I want us, to see, want us to see that this is not just, you know, some bad guy who, you know, doesn't love God and doesn't want to do his will. He's the grumpy prophet. He's like, uh, 
you know, Grumpy Smurf or uh, Oscar the Grouch or something. And, and, and he, you know, this is an aberrant story. No, this is a guy who apparently at some point really loved the Lord. This is a guy who, the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, that, that Jonah was a prophet living among the people during the time of Jeroboam. That he was doing the work of God for God's people and telling them the heart of God, the will of God, and faithfully ministering to God's people in that time. And he was known for that. But God asked him something. It was too deep, too difficult, too costly. And he got to a place where he said, I just can't. So before we start here, would, would, would you do this with me? We're just going to do a little exercise right now, okay? Would you just bow your heads? And right now, I just want you to offer up a simple prayer. Just, just say, God, search my heart. Show me where I resist you. Reveal to me where I'm fighting against your will. And teach me through Jonah how to surrender to you. In Jesus' name. The book of Jonah. If you haven't turned there in your Bibles already, I advise you to. We're going to try and chew through the whole book, all four chapters. Uh, I plan on only keeping you for about two hours tonight, so... <laughs> It should be a light sermon, easy content um, as we digest together. So first of all, let's set the stage a little bit. The first two verses of Jonah here tell us what, what the problem was with Jonah. Let's read it together. It says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their Evil has come up before me. So here's, here's the big dilemma. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them I'm about to judge them. Now, that doesn't seem like it's a big deal to us. But what you have to understand is that Nineveh was, it was an Assyrian city it's in modern-day Iraq, right next to what we would call uh, Mosul today, okay? Nineveh, this city that was a, just this wicked, wicked place, was, was taking over the known world at the time. And they were famous for their cruelty. I mean, they're the ones who perfected the art of flaying a person alive. They would skin people alive and then take their skin and... And, and, and throw it up, stick it like up to a wall and hang it there and let it dry on a wall. They would kill people uh, and, and then cut off their heads and then make giant pyramids outside of the cities that they conquered of human skulls. So when you came walking into the city, your hometown that had been burned up, what you would see is a pyramid of human heads sitting there rotting. Another little delightful thing that they 
they came up with is that they would take a long stave, a long pole, they would sharpen the end of it, they would insert it in the, in the anus of a victim, and then stand them up on the pole and let gravity slowly kill you. They would bury the poles in the ground and leave bodies displayed hanging there in the sunlight as people died in torturous, agony, uh, torturous ways full of agony. Okay? And God says to Jonah, the prophet, who no doubt has heard these stories, who no doubt has come in contact with some of their abuse, God says to Jonah, go to that city and tell them I'm going to judge them. Now you have to think, in Jonah's mind, he's going, well, just judge them. Do it. Why tell them? Right? Just rain down fire, kill them all. Praise God. But as he reasons through that, he goes, okay, wait a minute. If God is sending a prophet to go and tell them, then I wonder what God must be doing. He must want to save the Ninevites. You see, and this was the real issue. Matter of fact, at the end of the book, we find out this is what he's been wrestling with all along. In the last chapter, Jonah says to God, I knew it. I knew you would do this. I knew that you were gracious and that you were long-suffering and I knew that you would save these people. I hate this. I did not want this. That was what he was running from the entire time. Now, for us, in our modern day, we sit sort of removed from that kind of reality. And as a result, I think it's easy to, to look down on Jonah and go, well, Jonah, Jesus said, love your enemies. I don't know what your problem is. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. When we love God, we love our enemies. Okay? Interesting. I, I picked up an article from a couple of years ago. It was from the Fiscal Times. It's dated March 22nd, 2015. And more, of course, has occurred since then. But here's, here's a few things that ISIS has done. They, they're famous for slaughtering children. In January of 2015, ISIS executed 13 teenage boys in Mosul. Why? Because they were watching a soccer match on TV. They used machine guns in the public execution of the children and let the bodies lay in the street and threaten the families if they tried to recover the bodies of their children, that they would gun them down as well. Maybe you've seen some of the videos of, of them taking gay men and hurling them off the tops of buildings to their death below. They, they murder Shiites who pray in mosques. They execute their own soldiers. Matter of fact, ISIS at this point had killed up to 200 members of its own group between June 2014 and December 2014 in a matter of six months. 200 of their own soldiers. A British-based Syrian Observatory of Human Rights reported this issue, and, and they said this was the reason that the men had second thoughts about joining ISIS and had tried returning home. So what did they do? They, they killed them. They, they executed them. 
They kidnap women, and they sell them as sex slaves and force them to marry ISIS fighters. And not just women, but young girls, some of them in the age of, around the age of eight. They sell them into sex trades and keep them as their own private sex slaves. There's a famous video of them burning a pilot that they had captured, a British pilot. They put him in an iron cage, doused the entire cage in alcohol. He recorded the whole thing for the internet so the rest of the world could watch this man burn to death. Here's another thing. They, they traffic in black market organs using surgeons that they import from other countries. Um, they harvest and sell human organs to exploit the lucrative international black market for that. They take organs from their own deceased fighters as well as from their living captives and hostages, including from children uh, in the minority communities of Syria and Iraq. They sell hearts, livers, kidneys, they recruit children soldiers. One of the things that they do is when they're very, very young, at five or six years old, um, they will have them hold the gun while they are shooting and executing a prisoner. Or another thing that they'll do is they'll cut off the head of a prisoner, give it to a small child, and let him dance in the streets with it and encourage him to do that. They destroy ancient cities and priceless artifacts and destroy history. They, they burned a, 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 a library that cannot ever be replaced. It has ancient manuscripts that are thousands of years old. It's done away with. They make chemical weapons. They take children, and they, in order to supply blood for their, their military, they take these children off the streets, and they use them. They just take all of the blood out of their bodies till they're dead, and, and then put the blood of those children into their soldiers to repair them so that they can go out and fight again. This is ISIS. Guys, this is Nineveh. Same region, same people group, same horrific brutality. Can you see why Jonah wrestled? You want me to go to them? You, you want to save them? You want to spare them your judgment? God, why? Judge them. There's famous writings on monuments that exist in museums and to this day of men bragging about their exploits during the time of Jonah. Here's some quotes from some of those writings on those monuments. I cut off their heads and formed them into pillars. Bubbo, the son of Bubba, which I thought was kind of a hilarious white city name. He says, I, I flayed in the city of Arbella and spread uh, and spread his skin upon the city wall. I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Many within the border of my own land I flayed and spread their skins upon the walls. I cut off the limbs of the officers and the royal officers who had rebelled. 3,000 captives I burned with fire, 
and their corpses I formed into pillars. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses and their ears and their fingers, uh, and of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to posts about the city. Doesn't that sound very similar to the kind of stuff that Isis does? And see, this is where Jonah is wrestling. What if God told you, I love Isis. I want you to go to them. I want you to deliver my message to them so that they can be saved. After hearing this, could, could you do that? Could you, could you bring the good news of Jesus? Could you stand to see them forgiven, knowing what they've done to children and to the innocent? Could, isn't there a part of your heart that goes, God, I don't want them to be forgiven. Let them endure your wrath. Let them endure your judgment. I, I, I can't stand the thought of them somehow being in heaven with me. Don't let your blood go that far. I wonder, what would it take for each of us to tell God no? Something comes up. He says, I, I, I know what I want to do with you. This is, this is it. This is my will. What's that line in your heart? I go, no, I I can't. Not, not only can I not, I, I just won't. I know you're God. I know you're just. I know you've saved me. I know you love me. I know you will probably even forgive me for this, but I, no. I won't. Jonah reached that point. In previous times, maybe he had approached the king and brought a word to the king. He had brought a word to the city. He had told the Israelites, you guys are about to be judged as well, and I'm going to use the Assyrians to do it. He had spoken on behalf of God countless, countless times and brought the message of God to rebellious people countless times, but this was too much. Jonah hit his line. So what did he do? Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so here's Jonah's response. He's like, I can't and I won't. So the furthest place that you could possibly go in the known world in that time from where he was, and the quickest way to get there was by sea. He's in Tarshish. He comes down to Joppa, which is a port city on the, coast, the northern coast of Israel. 
The same place, by the way, in which Peter argued with God and said, I can't do that. You can't, you can't tell me to go there. <laughs> Great tie-in with Acts chapter 10, if you ever want to study that out sometime. But he flees to, to Joppa. There he catches a boat to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is on the Atlantic coast of Spain. You have to pass through the, the Rock of Gibraltar right there. You know, you guys, if you're looking at a map, you've got the, the Mediterranean Sea. It kind of come, Africa comes up. Europe comes down. There's a little gap, Rock of Gibraltar. In the middle. You've got to go through that gap to the outside, to the Atlantic side. It was as far as you could get away from the will of God and away from Israel and away from God's people and specifically away from the Ninevites. So he makes his way. I mean, you got to give the guy credit, right? It's like, no, I really mean it. No, I won't go. And you can't make me. And I'm going the opposite direction as far away as I possibly can. And I'm really committed to this. I'm getting on a boat today. <laughs> they went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. And notice there in verse 3, I think it's just interesting. So he paid the fare. I just, I just think it's ironic how invested he is in his own will. He's willing to pay whatever price for his own heart, right? To get what he wants, to get what he needs, to, to do what he desires, but he's not willing to pay any price to do God's will. Well, he takes off. Now, we're going to divide the book of Jonah into really four sections here. So the first one is that God calls Jonah to the unlovable. That's chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God calls Jonah to the unlovable, for those of you who are note takers. Chapter 1, verses, verse 3, all the way through chapter 2, is God saves Jonah from the impossible. God saves Jonah from the impossible. So chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God calls Jonah to the unlovable. Chapter 1, verses, verse 3 to chapter 2, all the way to the end, God saves Jonah from the impossible. Then chapter 3, God uses Jonah for the unimaginable. And lastly, chapter 4, God teaches Jonah the unthinkable. Those last two again, God uses Jonah for the unimaginable. And the last one, God teaches Jonah the unthinkable. So Jonah runs from the will of God. So God uses three things in Jonah's life. What does he use? He uses, first of all, a powerful storm. Second of all, pagan sailors. And thirdly, a putrid stomach. So the first one, a powerful storm. Jonah gets in the boat, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, what are you doing? You sleeper, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give to us, um, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
So the first thing, God sends a powerful tempest, a powerful storm. Why? Because Jonah's running, right? So what does God make his running like? He makes it difficult. No, I'm not going to allow that. You know, interesting story. In 1997, it was November. Um, I was an unsaved young man. I was making my way up to Portland. I'd come into a large cash sum from a car accident that I was in, and I decided I was going to double my money, right? So I converted that to illegal narcotics and then made my way up to Portland and was going to sell it. Well, I decided I was going to party a little bit beforehand because if you've got illegal narcotics, that's what you should do. And, um, so I, I made my way, and I'm driving up to Portland, and as, as I get kind of midway, I get... Um, you know, towards Winston, that area, right? Every time I drive that freeway, I remember this exact spot. And you know how when you look out on a horizon, you see like lights, and they kind of are on a plane, just like on a, on a flat plane, you'll see them kind of all dotted along. But I, of course, was hallucinating and, you know, not in my right mind. Uh, and as a result, all of those lights sort of just melted together and formed this flaming sword. And in the middle of I-5, I came to a complete stop. I just stopped there in my car, and I'm staring at this flaming sword on the horizon, going, what is happening? And then as I sat there for a minute, all the lights just sort of dissipated, and so cars are honking and flying past me. You know, it's like a terrible scenario. So I, I pull off to the side, and I, I get off to the side. And I'm like, okay, okay all right. Uh, boy, I'm just, you know, I should have slept a little. Maybe I shouldn't party so hard. You know, <laughs> rationalizing in my mind. Um, I just got to make it to Portland, I said. So I get back on the freeway. Not... Two hours from there, just outside of Eugene, I, uh, I get pulled over by a state police officer. And I see the pretty lights behind me. And I'm like, oh, those are pretty. Oh, those are for me, right? So I pull over. The police officer comes down. I roll down my window. And I said, hello, officer. He says, hi. Uh, do you know why I pulled you over? Now, the unfortunate thing was that uh, my speedometer was broken at the time. So I'm having to guess what my speed is. So I said to him, I said, well, was I, was I speeding? My speedometer's broke. I'm trying to explain it to him. He says, nah, nah, you, you were going 35 miles an hour on the freeway. <laughs> Would you please step out of the car? <laughs> Listen, sometimes when you're headed the wrong direction, God will do whatever it takes to stop you. He'll send a storm. He will blockade your way. He will make it so difficult for you to make that your course. Why? Because he loves you. It's because he absolutely loves you. And so he tried with everything in him. Stop him. You know what else he'll do? Is he'll send people your way that are annoying. Here's Jonah in the bottom of the boat, snoozing away. It's like, oh, this is nice. He's just rocking away in the bottom of the boat. And the people upstairs are freaking out. He's down there going, boy, rebellion has never been this good. 
But he can't sleep there in peace. Why? Because the captain of the ship comes down and rattles his cage. What are you doing? Wake up. Shouldn't you be calling out to your God? Jonah's like, oh, I'm in a bad position to call out to God right now. Here's this pagan, unbelieving sailor. Something in me says that when he woke him up, he didn't wake him up with nice words. He's a sailor. Right? He's a roughneck. And here this guy with not nice words and a not nice attitude wakes Jonah up and says, why don't you call out to your God? You know how that must have hit Jonah? Oh, man. You see, when you are running away from God, one of the things that God will do in response is he will send people who, they're annoying. (laughs) Sometimes you don't even expect them. Sometimes it's an unbelieving person in your life that's like, hey, aren't you a Christian? Aren't you, be, aren't, you, aren't you supposed to be following God? Or, why are you doing this? He'll send people, he'll send messengers to remind you who you belong to and what God's will is. But Jonah doesn't listen then. <laughs> if you skip down a few verses, they cast lots. The lot falls on Jonah in verse 9. It says, he said to them, I'm... I'm a Hebrew, because they're asking, okay, where did you come from? Why are you here? The gods are ticked off at us, and it's obviously your fault because you drew this short straw. He says, okay, uh, you caught me. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah's already tying it in. He's like, oh, man, God destroyed the world with a flood at one point in judgment against them. Maybe he's after me this time, right? God, the same one who made the sea and the dry land, he's the one I follow. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. This is commitment in rebellion, right? It's like, okay, I could pray. That's option one, right? I could ask for forgiveness. I could do that. I'll take option B. Throw me overboard into the ocean because I'd rather die than do God's will. Man, he is committed. Well, they, they tried everything to not have to do that. And eventually they realized we don't have any other option. We've thrown everything else out of the boat. Okay, let's throw out Jonah too. Verse 14, these pagans call out to the Lord. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. 
and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Imagine that moment. They've got Jonah up above their shoulders. Okay. Seems like a bad idea. He's supposed to be a prophet of God, but God's really ticked at him, and we don't want to die for his sin. And then if we throw him in, will we die for his sin? (laughs) We don't want to mess with this God. So they're like, okay, God, don't be mad at us for what he did, and then don't be mad at us for what we're about to do. And they chuck him overboard. The minute Jonah hits the water, the sea starts to calm down. you imagine these guys sitting on the edge of the boat, looking at each other like idiots? Did you see that? Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and they started making vows. They started making all kinds of promises. (laughs) That's an appropriate response, right? See, Jonah's already leading a revival, and he just doesn't know it. So Jonah gets thrown into the sea. What happens next? We all kind of know the story. I think if you've been around church culture at all, you've heard any stories from uh, your childhood, you, you know what comes next. Then the Lord, verse 17, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2 then records for us a prayer from Jonah in the belly of the whale. J- Jonah's in the belly, and he's... He's there, you know, and and here's what happens. It's so hot in there. And he's got seaweed wrapped around his head. He talks about it in in chapter 2. It's so hot in there that he thinks that he's in hell. He's like, yep, I knew that this would come. I rebelled against the Lord. And from that place, this place that he thinks is Sheol, the abode of the dead, he thinks he's in hell, he thinks he's in a place of judgment, he begins to cry out to the Lord. Verse 9. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice unto you. What I have vowed, I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord. Last line of his prayer, and then look at God's response. It's immediate. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. (laughs) Here's the amazing thing about God. You know, you and I, we can run so far away from God at times. There's seasons in people's lives where where they know what God's will is and they they hear God's heart and they're just running from what God wants for them, running from what God wants them to do. And and, and the old adage is really true that you can take a thousand steps away from God, but it's always only one step back. Repentance. Coming to the Lord and saying, okay, I yield. You can have me. And as soon as he does that, God responds. He says, okay, you get your get out of hell free card. (laughs) Ejected onto the beach. Now, 
There was a story, I tried to verify that. There's a story of a man from the late 1800s that they called the Jonah Man. And um, he was a, apparently on a whaling vessel. And um, the, the boat that, you know, they send out these smaller whaling boats um, after they harpoon a whale. And then they tie the rope to that boat and let the whale drag it around until the whale dies. Uh, well, this whale apparently charged the boat broke the boat, and it, it fell into the water, and they presumed that he drowned. Well, 36 hours later, they pull this whale up to the port, and they, they start processing this whale, start cutting it open, and, you know, trying to keep everything from rotting, and, and other animals from attacking, and whatever else, and so they pull him up to the port, and, and as they gut the whale, they see something moving in there, and, and they open it up, and, and out pops this sailor, <laughs> And he had survived, had been alive for 36 hours in this whale, but he was, um, he had apparently lost his mind. His skin was super wrinkly and bleached white, and all the hair in his body had fallen out from the stomach acids, I presume, or whatever. And, um, and he suffered with, with some blindness as a result. Now, the Bible doesn't say that it was a whale, but of course, you know, we've, we've looked at that story and said, okay, then maybe that's what happened. Maybe it was a whale because fish are cold-blooded. He felt heat, and, you know, we start adding all the pieces together. But this guy apparently toured Europe for a bit as the Jonah man. He would, you know, make this circuit, and he's like, yeah, I got swallowed by a whale and bleached white and lost all my hair, and my eyes are flaming red. So imagine this for just a moment. Oh, another side feature is that all of his clothes had dissolved off of him. He's buck naked, right? So let's say you're just sitting on the shore, right? All of a sudden, you're like, look, it's a whale. Look, kids, right? Kids are, oh, yeah, it's a whale, you know? What's it doing? He gets up close to the beach, and just is like, what? Woof, out comes naked albino boy, Right? He's got seaweed wrapped around him. He's bleached white, no hair, red eyes. What are you thinking at that moment? <laughs> right? So when Jonah gets up, he says, all right, I'll do it. I'll go. I'm not happy about it, but I said I would do it. I'll pay my vows. I'm going to do it. So chapter 3, Jonah goes to Nineveh. So verse 1 of chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. The city was so large, the sprawl on it was about 60 miles a huge city, right? So for three days, what's he go? What's he doing? Walking through the city, telling them the message that God has for him. And Jonah began to go into the city, go in a day's journey, and he called out, in 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. <laughs> Think about this. This is, this is great. Jonah's like, I'm, I'll do it, but I'm not happy about it, Right? So God says, just tell him, just tell him. Like, All right, you want me to tell him? I'll give him eight words. Right? That's what they get. Forty days from now, God's going to kill you. That's it. Now, 
Would you think huge revival would break out from that? I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, what if some guy just walks in here? First of all, he's albino white, no hair, red eyes, looks half crazy. And he says, 40, 40 days from now, God's going to kill you if you don't repent. How many of you go, well, I don't trust what that guy's saying. But you see, unbeknownst to Jonah, God had already been working in the Ninevites. You see, first of all, he sends Jonah as this half-witted messenger. He looks like a wreck. I mean, when you look at Jonah, you don't think, oh, here's a prophet from God. You look at him, you think, something's wrong here, right? He looks otherworldly for sure. He looks alien. Matter of fact, you might even say he looks like a zombie. He looks like he was dead and then came back to life. His skin's white and wrinkly and, you know, no hair and red eyes. And it's like, what is up with this guy? Probably little children start crying when they see him. Women are like, oh, you know, they hide their faces behind a burqa or something. He looks like a wreck. He's a half-witted messenger. He's got a half-hearted message. Jonah preaches this anemic sermon. 40 days from now, God's going to kill you. That's the whole message. No explanation. No, hey, this is what you did wrong. This is why God's... He doesn't give any of the details. Just 40 days from now, God's going to kill you. The city will be overthrown. Jonah sees, though... The response of this anemic sermon that even though the sermon was weak, it was backed by the power of God. And look at the response of the people. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest unto the least to them. And then if you skip down, even the king gets in on this. Verse 6, the word reached to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout the entire city of Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. We're all fasting, including our animals. Right? But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Wow. Hey, you know, sometimes, guys, when it comes to preaching the gospel to other people, we have this message about salvation, which is also a dual message. It's a message about the judgment of God and the justice of God, right? That we have one opportunity for salvation, and it's through the Son who gave his life for our sin. And, and, and when we bring that message, there's all kinds of nervousness. We, and and I've, I've talked to people o- over the years that are like, man, I just don't know if I'm going to share the right things. And what if I say something wrong and I turn people away from God? And they're, they're worried about the message. But listen, this is the most anemic gospel message ever. But when it is backed by the power of God, it brings salvation to the entire city. Listen, God didn't call you to be effective. He called you to be faithful. You preach it. Salvation is in the Lord's hands. 
It's our job to talk about it. It's God's job to save people. So this half-witted messenger with a half-hearted message sees an amazing revival because of the power of God. You see, what Jonah didn't know is that previous to this, there were two plagues that broke out in the city of Nineveh, one in 765 and one in 759 B.C. And then that was followed uh, right in that same time period, excuse me, right in between those two plagues was a solar eclipse that really freaked the people out in the city. So they've got plague, solar eclipse, plague, right? And then albino messenger boy who's freaking families out. And he's only got one message. 40 days from now, God's going to kill you. And people are like, we're listening. <laughs> right? Okay. You win. You're God. You control the sun. You have the power to kill all of us. That is evident by these plagues that have come through. And, and Jonah has no idea that his message that he's bringing is the exact thing that they need to hear in that moment. And they'll believe. <laughs> Our call is not to be effective, it's to be faithful. So Jonah delivers the message in verse 10. Note what happens here. When God saw what they did, that's the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, what did God do? God relented of the disaster that he said he would do. And he did not do it. God changed his mind. Why? Because the people repented. Hey, are you fighting God on an issue of repentance? Is there something that God's been calling you out on? He's been saying, hey, I want you to deal with this. You've got to deal with this. Can I just tell you what happens when you repent? God heals. He forgives. He begins to restore and redeem. The longer we hold off, the more that we invite his discipline in our lives. The city repents. They turn to God, and God responds. And finally, we get to chapter 4, this last chapter. It's really kind of a sad chapter because it's Jonah throwing a fit. Verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That... That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Wait a minute. I mean, check this out. This city erupts. In repentance, revival breaks out. An entire city that is 60 miles wide 
because of the preaching of Jonah, comes to God and repents. I, have you guys had that kind of success? I, at, at that point, I'd be like, oh, this is, this is better than I thought. Right? Not Jonah. He sits on the side of a mountain, folds his arms like a little kid. I knew it. I knew this would happen. He's so bent out of shape. He's so angry. And he starts talking to God about how angry he is with him. I knew you would do this. I knew you were compassionate and long-suffering. And I knew you would heal him. I knew that this would happen. I'm so, you know what? Just kill me. I just wish I was dead. Right? He's just having a complete meltdown, freak-out moment. And so God does something incredible for Jonah. He begins to ask him some questions. Verse 4, and the Lord said, you do well to be angry. So Jonah went out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat un under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. He's still hoping God is going to judge it. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So here, as Jonah's freaking out, throwing a fit, this plant just begins to kind of like grow up over the top of him. And he's like, oh, it's shady here. It's nice. I feel better. Right? <laughs> so Jonah was glad. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Day 2. He's still hoping God's going to judge the city, right? He's sitting there waiting, hoping God's going to set it on fire, do something crazy. And then this worm comes, eats the nice plant that was giving him shade the, next day, the day before. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. He's back into the pity party mode again. He's like, ah, I just wish I was dead. Goes right back into it. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. <laughs> Can you believe this guy? Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it to grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle, even the animals? Now think about this. God is speaking to Jonah, and he says to him, hey, Jonah, listen, you are out of touch with your surroundings. Everyone out here is about to die. 120,000 people. You're upset about a plant that dies. You did nothing for it. It grew up because of my miraculous power. It died the next day, and you're upset about a plant. I got 120,000 souls and animals down there, too. Do I want them to die? Do I want them to perish? You feel justified. Am I justified, Jonah? 
You're out of touch with your surroundings. You're out of touch with your message. You are surrounded by truth, Jonah. You even talk about my character. You say, I knew that you were patient and long-suffering and that you would save. You know that's my character, but you don't apply that truth to your own life. You don't see that that's how I've been to you. Jonah, you deserve my judgment the same way that Nineveh deserves my judgment. But I have been gracious to you and long-suffering. The only thing Jonah is in touch with is his own comfort. That's all he sees. It's hot. I'm so distressed I could die. Oh, it's shady. I feel better now. Oh, it's hot again. Just kill me. He's just, he's at the center of his world. Do you see that? And God exposes that at this very last moment. He says to Jonah, listen, Jonah, I care for my enemies. Even you. So what do we learn from the book of Jonah? What's what's kind of the main point? You know, what I realized this morning as I was preparing for this is that every time I've ever heard the the book of Jonah taught, it's always centered on Jonah as the main character. But that's not the story of the Bible, is it? Who's the main character in the Bible? Yeah, Jesus, God, right? Listen, this is a story about God. He is hell-bent on saving his enemies. He will do whatever it takes to save people that shake their fists at him, that are in rebellion against him, that want nothing to do with him, that are abusing his precious ones. And he desires to save them, regardless of how Jonah feels about it. Another thing we learn about God is that when following God, we can do things the easy way or we can do it the Jonah way. Right? There's a shortcut to Nineveh. It's through obedience. You can take the long route, swallowed by a whale, barfed up on a beach, albino for life. I mean, maybe that would be a cool adventure. But can I recommend the shortcut? Can I recommend that we do things the easy way? When we're arguing with God, who is going to lose? We are. How much will our rebellion cost us? It costs Jonah a lot. I've heard it said that God's love is like a rubber band, right? It's like you can run away from God. And I'm running and running and running. And the question is not whether or not we have freedom to run. The question is how hard will we hit when we come back? Another thing we can learn about God God holds each generation accountable for what they do. You know, 100 years later after this, the city of Nineveh heard from another prophet named Nahum right before his judgment did fall on that same city that had repented 100 years earlier. That generation had passed. The next generation did not faithfully receive the message. And God's judgment came down upon them. Generation after generation, this is the way that God has always dealt with mankind. See, this is a really interesting story because Jesus in the New Testament chooses to identify with Joshua 
or with Joshua, with Jonah, excuse me. You see, God loves his enemies so much, the world that he has to judge so much, that instead of calling a Jonah an unwilling messenger, God called a faithful messenger, his son, to go to his enemies. He was buried not in the belly of a whale for three days, but buried in the earth for three days. And rather than being barfed up on a beach, the stone was rolled away and he came out alive from the dead. Did he proclaim judgment? No, he proclaimed forgiveness to all those who repent. And rather than sitting on a hillside somewhere, waiting for God's judgment to fall, he sits down at the right hand of the Father and welcomes all those who call upon his name. And all of heaven rejoices with him over every sinner that repents. Jesus looks at this story of Jonah and he says, what I did through Jonah, I'm going to do again through my son, through me. Alive from the dead, from the belly of the earth, after three days and three nights, I'm going to save the same God that saved Nineveh is the same Nineveh is the same God that has saved you and I. And for that, there's a lot of reason to rejoice tonight. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that it be rolling around in our hearts and minds. And if you have identified in us some area of rebellion, God, help us to repent. Help us to turn to you. May we follow in the footsteps of your son. May we learn the lesson of Jonah. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful night. And we'll see you on Sunday.